Cheryl Nietzsche tells us about one of the cases she'll never forget. Not just a parking ticket, but where shit really hit the fence. Something really bad had happened. There was so many of them, but there's one that will probably stay with me forever. You know, you guys can relate to this. There are those cases that, God, you wish you could forget, but that haunt you for the rest of your life. We got a call. This is when I was working down in the fan district. Guy that I went through the academy with, he was the log unit, and I was there as backup. I want to say it was late at night, early, early in the morning, like somewhere between like maybe 11 p.m., 2 or 3 a.m., and it was called in as a B&E in progress, breaking and entering in progress. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Everybody, this is the most interesting podcast on the internet, and we are the most interesting people on the internet. My name's Morgan Wright, and I'm here literally with my partner in crime, Steve Murphy, but you can call me Murph. Mr. Hackalung, Mr. I still got a cough. <laughs> I was supposed to be moving to Florida, and it was supposed to be so much better for me, and here I am still hacking up hairballs and lungs. Oh, that's bronchitis. I don't know if it's bronchitis now or what, but it's kicking my butt. If it's bronchitis, dude, you got the longest case of bronchitis I've ever heard of. Well, I, the first thing I think was a sinus infection, but hey, we're getting better. And you know what? It's warm here. I'm sitting here in shorts and a t-shirt, so yes, yeah, just you. a flesh wound. Yeah, yeah, you traitorous bastard. Anyway, <laughs> hey guys, thanks for joining us. Uh, hey, I tell you what, we got so many remarks about Claudia and just her persistence, her will to live, and just the fact is that she, just her. The way she accepts it and the way she's moving on, I mean, the way, like you talked about, she laughed. She's just love to hear that. You can hear the smile, you know, when she talks and, and then the laughter, just great. You know what? That's going to be a lifelong learning experience for her. It's something she'll never forget. But her positive attitude, it's like, man, she has moved on. This guy didn't get anything over on Claudia. I just, again, I'm just so freaking proud of her. I can't wait to meet her this summer. Yeah, we're gonna we'll be down there for the Southern California Gang Conference with Alex Collins. He'll be down there, you know, from uh, episode twenty four. You know, right. the sand shootout with Chris Dorner. So we've got a lot of interesting stuff. But speaking of interesting stuff, let's do just a little bit of housekeeping before we get into the fun stuff. So hey, head on over to that Apple review. Give us five stars or whatever platform you are. I think we I think we're earning it, man. When you listen to the quality of the people we bring on and the stories, folks, I believe we have earned the right to ask you for five stars. Well, that's right, our Murph? story. That's our story. And we're sticking to it. Damn right. We're from the government. We're here to help. <laughs> so uh, just, it really does help us out though. Trust us. And then head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. That's where we put merchandise, the mailing list, which will notify you. And we will be notifying you of a Christmas gift. We're going to give you, we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. Follow us on the social medias at game of crimes on Twitter, game of crimes podcast on Facebook and on the Instagram. And then this is where I wanted to save it, Steve. I decided that we shall give the gift that everybody deserves this Christmas season, the gift of us, right? <laughs> yeah, you thought you were going to get a lump of coal. You're getting us. <laughs> you're getting us. And guess what we're going to do? Normally for everybody, if you're not on Patreon, obviously you need to be, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Normally our Narcometer, when we do, uh, we vote on our Narcometer and we do our monthly live stream, that's usually reserved for, or it is, it's for Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne. But what we're doing is we're going to open up this month's narcometer 
and our live stream to everybody, whether you're on Patreon or not, no matter what level you're at. We just want to show you guys what you're missing. And so we're going to do this on Facebook. It's going to be in our uh, Game of Crimes, just so that we gave you the address, facebook.com slash Game of Crimes podcast. It's going to be, you don't have to be a member of anything. It's free. You know, the page is free to join. We're, that's where we're going to do it. So we're going to do it Friday, not Friday, Wednesday. No. Yeah. Wednesday, December 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern. Now, some of you guys out there get a little bit of confused. That's 8 p.m. Eastern time, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific. And I don't even know what time it is in Hawaii. And if you're in Hawaii, I don't want to hear from you anyway because it's actually even warmer and better than what it is in Florida. Jeez. <laughs> Jealous. Jealous. So remember this. Put it down on your calendars. Wednesday, December 22nd, a date which will live in infamy. At 8 p.m. Eastern, we're going to be doing our live stream, our review of the greatest Christmas movie ever made, Die Hard. And I've got a couple special things that I'm going to surprise you with. Murph's already seen part of it. The rest of it is coming. It'll be here for this episode. Yeah, I'm not going to give up your surprise, but uh, well, just let's just say don't expect too much, everybody. <laughs> That would be you. You moved to Florida, geez. Hey, I'll put Can't on even a clean get dressed anymore. Well, I'm glad it's yeah, I'm glad it's clean. That's the only thing that's clean this time. <laughs> so just head on over there, patreon.com slash game of crimes, and it is the best place in the world to be. If you want to just do a pause for the cause, paypal.com, use our email, game of crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you. Now, quick disclaimer. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but... But we never take ourselves seriously, and that's what makes it so much fun. That's right, and speaking of fun, guess what time it is, Murph? Oh, no. Let's go faster. It's okay. time for... Small, Small Town, town Police, police Blotters! You're still too damn slow, man. You're still too you damn slow. You can't keep up. Oh, dude. Okay, man. <laughs> Okay, this first one, speaking of not keeping up, this is somebody, a oh, man in stolen car arrested after asking officers for directions. Dunn police charged a Fayetteville man with driving a stolen vehicle after the van reportedly stopped to ask police for directions. The driver of the vehicle identified as Rodney Antoine Brown of Fayetteville uh, initially was just asking for directions. They gave him directions. This is the location of the jail, dude. <laughs> He now has an AKA called Dumbass. <laughs> dumbass from Dunn. The Dunn Dumbass asking it, police for directions. Is this North Carolina? It doesn't say. I'm oh, almost wondering Fayetteville. I may have to, it might be that or it could be Arkansas, you know, yeah. or as they say over there, it should be called Arkansas. We've had that discussion with Mike Neal, episode eight. Yes, it's we did. Arkansas. And I wear my Arkansas shirt in, in memory of him. So. That's right. But there's a Dunn, North Carolina, too, is why I, why I thought that. Well, well, we'll have to. We'll do some digging. We shall investigate this and get to the bottom of it. But speaking, getting to the bottom of it, Steve, this is just the headline alone. The story is irrelevant. Just the headline alone. Man competent enough to be declared insane. Uh, wow, <laughs> that's not an oxymoron, is it? You think I knew big words like that, did you? Uh, well, it's. I sent it to you right before the episode. Said this is how you pronounce it. So, a diagnosed schizophrenic was accused of attacking a Great Smoky Mountains National Park ranger. Is now medicated enough to be mentally competent enough to to be declared insane. Oh, that doesn't even make any sense. Uh, you talk oh. about taking it to a whole different level. There you go. Well, here his federal defender said, I still think there is some confusion, but I think at this stage we're not objecting to that finding. The defendant sheet said. 
Well, he felt fairly good, but I'd still like to use my right to remain silent. <laughs> no. Please do. Please do. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh, man. I know. Unbelievable. Hey, but this next story made me think of you, Murph. Oh, good. Let's this comes to us from Verona, Wisconsin, population 13,233. Salute. Salute. Guess what, Murph? At 4.51 p.m., a high school student attempted to touch a police officer while waiting at the high school for a bus, asking the officer, do you even lift? Touching where? <laughs> Touching where? I don't, it gets back to our question from, uh, who was it? Rick Jacobson yeah. says, what does Murphy do exactly at the gym? Do you even lift at the gym, Murph? Well, that wasn't the question. It's just, what do I do at the gym? <laughs> you know, my wife keeps telling me I need to get in shape. I said, baby, round is a shape. Come round on. is a shape. Round <laughs> is a shape. Well, guess what, Murph? This next one, I actually have some experience with a very similar type of situation. This comes to us somewhere Rock Hill. Don't know where it's at. Uh, just the clipping I have. Police were informed February 25th by a resident of the 1000 block of Raritan Drive that a family in the area is taking over the minds of local dogs and turning them against their owners. Police were advised by the person that the only way to protect the dog is to install an anti-force field on its head. There you go. Good luck with that. <laughs> Get that big Rottweiler. Put that helmet on him. See what oh, happens. Oh, man. In Salina, Kansas, when I was a police officer in Salina, Kansas, we had a lady who believed that she was on South 9th Street. I don't want to give her name away because she's probably since passed away. She was crazy as a fox, but she, she really believed that there were remote control ball bearings in her house. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah some of them floating around in her head there. When she shook her oh. head, it wasn't muddy water. It was ball bearings no. rolling around in there. Hey, so, Steve, time to keep the streak alive. Guess, Absolutely. Guess what? What year was it? Here we go. Uh, all right. This one is actually reported to us in the Tribune out of Scranton, Pennsylvania, on October 3rd. However, it comes to us from Glasgow, Scotland, land mm -hmm. of my ancestors. All right. So Glasgow, again, torn by frenzy rioting. You know, obviously, William Wallace is apparently sacking York. Mm. Unemployment demonstrators use hammers and hatchets in wild attacks on police. Disturbances rage for more than five hours. Just a quick couple paragraphs. Uh, on October 3rd, Glasgow was torn last night and this morning by wild unemployment disorders during which demonstrators used hammers, hatchets, and anything they could lay their hands on to fight mounted police attempting to prevent looting the shops. The disturbances starting at 8.30 last night when mounted men charged a group of demonstrators outside the high court in Jail Square raged for more than five hours. Scores were injured. I'll imagine. Holy cow. In Glasgow, Scotland. So, Steve, you have to tell me. Okay. Was it October 3rd? <clears throat> 1941, 1921, or 1931? Uh, well, let's see. Let's go with 1931. <laughs> you got that one. Hey, look at that. You know, in Glasgow, what a beautiful place. That whole country of Scotland, I love it. That's oh, one man. of the prettiest places I've ever been. It is great. Uh, I'd love to, I would love to get there. I have not had the chance to go to Ireland or Scotland. Been all over the UK. I mean England, but I just got to get there. My sister went there, so yeah, I've got to. I, just like you say, just the the bothies and the 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 locks. That's where the Loch Ness monster comes from. Well, but, the, uh, Ed, Edinburgh, what a beautiful city, and and you've got to see Edinburgh Castle at nighttime, sitting up on the hill there. They've got it all lit up, really nice. It's a beautiful place. People were really nice there. It's a beautiful place. Well. 
Speaking of beautiful places, which is Northern whoa, whoa, Virginia, whoa, 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 until whoa, the traitorous whoa, bastard whoa. left me and went to Florida. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's let's not just bypass the fact that I got this right today. Woohoo! Let's celebrate. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut, Murph. <laughs> I work with a nut. <laughs> okay, go ahead. All right. So hey, but uh, this one is somebody I know. Uh, got to know her through a, a deal that we we're working on about some of the releases that the parole board were doing in Virginia, including when they released a convicted cop killer. He had shot a police officer in the head five times, was allowed to go out, and I ended up meeting her through that because she really got a very interesting story. And it's Cheryl Nietzsche. And uh, you're going to see that Cheryl doesn't have a Virginian accent. We're just going <laughs> to let you guess where the accent is from. <laughs> I was going to say, she's not from the South. Not our not South, Not from anyway. the South. So <laughs> not, not, not like we got one coming up, somebody who was transplanted from Maryland to Georgia. That will be our episode following uh, Trisha yeah. Cannon, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. There but you go. Cheryl, actually, Steve, this, this one is another story. It's kind of like Claudia. This is somebody in her own way, because she's unique mm -hmm. in her own way, about how she responded. She was shot, ambushed in the face. And if it had, she not been bending down to look at something, we might not be having this story, but it was just that mirror. But by this time, this guy had already killed three people. He's a spree killer shot and wounded a sheriff's deputy. And then for reasons that you will come to understand during the podcast decided that he wanted to kill her. And uh, so this is something her story is about the same thing about how do you survive that? What do you do to come back from it? I mean, it's just, again, it's just one of those things is here is, here is somebody who, Murph, I mean, there's a lot of places to get shot, but you think shot in the face. I mean, how do you come back from that? Right. Yeah. And you know, her, her attitude, I mean, you're going to hear her talk about her cute dimples now, <laughs> which she's we call got, scars. Let me tell you, she's got attitude with the capital A. Oh yeah. But you know what? All these years later, she is still doing everything she can to help her fellow man. And I, she is so admirable. She's like Claudia. She's like Alex. She's like Joe Pierasante, all the people we've had on Kevin Stevens that, you know, have been wounded in the line of duty and have come back a hundredfold, not letting those son of a bitches, the cowards that pulled the trigger on them, not letting them take control of their lives. It just makes you so proud to, to talk to these people, to get to know them a little bit. I can't say enough good things about them. And, and Cheryl, Nietzsche, I love that last name, Nietzsche. It's going to appeal to some of our people like Sandy Salvato and Salvato and, you know, yeah. you know Fred Nicolosi and some of our people on the podcast whose name's in and avow. There's got to be a mob. And, Steve, I think there is a mob connection. But before we find out the mob connection, mm -hmm. i got to ask yourself one question. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? Once again, everyone, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Let's hear Cheryl's story. Folks, again, this is a high honor. We have got some good stuff coming up for you. Before we get started, this is the best podcast on the internet when you want to hear about the real stuff that's happening and where you want to hear the real stuff that's going on. And I am the host, well, one of the hosts. I am the co-host, Morgan Wright, here with my, literally with my partner in crime. Murph, Steve Murphy here. And you know what? We know it makes Game of Crimes as the best podcast out there. It's because we don't try to tell somebody else's story. Nope. We bring them on and you get to hear it from the horse's mouth. 
This is what really goes on. Nobody's twist is on it. You hear what really happened. And we don't really have a horse on that. It's just a euphemism. That's just a, <laughs> that's just a saying, right? <laughs> hey, but what we have on is somebody from my area, from the great Commonwealth of Virginia. She was a Richmond police officer. You're going to hear her story. Um, we actually did a, a video of this quite a while back, but now we're bringing it to the podcast. And so I want to welcome... To the podcast, a fellow Virginian, former Richmond police officer, and all-around good person, Cheryl O'Connell. Cheryl! Welcome, Cheryl! How you guys doing? Actually, I still go by Nietzsche. You still go by Nietzsche? Nietzsche. Yep. Well, then quit, right, put, Nietzsche. quit putting O'Connell then on your emails then, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a good Irish name. You don't want to lose a good Irish yeah, name. That's a good Irish name. Um, I happily lost the good Irish name. Uh, I okay. smell a divorce in here somewhere, so we'll we'll get into that a little bit. But as you can tell, as you can tell by the accent, Cheryl is not from Virginia originally. So we're going to get into that. So Cheryl, um, you're you know you're living uh, in Southern Virginia. I'm up here in Northern Virginia, but still you know great area, great stuff. But you originally didn't start out out here. I'm, I'm going to guess, and I I know I'm not going to guess. I know you're you're a little bit farther north. So let's talk about. Where did you come from, and what made you start in this profession uh, we call law enforcement? Um, I grew up in a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts, called Malden, and moved to Saugus when I was in my freshman year of high school down here, my final year of junior high up there. Small city, had one elementary school, Actually, two junior highs, one high school, everybody knew everybody. Had three brothers, older brothers, an Italian father, little short mom, and very family-oriented community. If you misbehaved, the neighbors would whoop your butt and then call your parents and you'd get it whooped again. It wasn't child <laughs> abuse, it was discipline. Yeah. That's right. And, and you know, it's the same way in the South, sure. <laughs> I grew up the same way. Yeah. So, um, ironically, um, my classes, our elementary school got a little big, and my uh, classes in the sixth grade were held in a parochial school building next door to the elementary school. So we would see the nuns, man, uh, and the rulers and the whole bit. And laugh at the poor kids going to parochial school. Hey, there, there's a lot of Jeez. folks out here that have gone that route, Catholic school. And uh, yes, the rulers with the nuns, uh, that is the stuff of legend and lore. But <laughs> obviously it didn't deter you from, uh, you know, wanting to go into law enforcement. So you thought that and you said, hey, I could be a nun, but I could have a uniform on and I could whack people on the knuckles with ruler in a figurative sense, right? Oh, absolutely. But no, um. None of that for me, no fun. <laughs> um, we, we, as I said, we had a small community. Everybody knew all the police officers. Generally, as a rule, you didn't see the police in your neighborhood. The community pretty much took care of its own issues, looked out for each other. Occasionally, you'd see the police, but um, very different. What, what's your first memory of, like, the, the police when you saw them there? I mean, you know, in terms of, like, uniforms, people, you know, what, when you were growing up, because, like, everybody knows, too, depending on what part of your country you're in, 
the, the, the type of policing that is done is far different, you know, and, and the way they handle things is far different. So what was it like growing up in a burb of Boston, um, you know, with the cops there at the time? What, what was it like? Up, in, up until um, I moved in the ninth grade to a different locality, everybody knew their neighborhood police officer. We knew the detectives. Um, they were part of the community. Uh, I had a close family friend, Detective Ted Green, with the Malden Police Department, and he stayed in touch and was a key factor in me pursuing a career in law enforcement. And you need to remember, going back into the 1960s, female police officers, especially in Massachusetts, oh my goodness, that was unheard of. And from the time I was six years old, I always used to say, I want to be a policeman when I grow up. And everybody would laugh and go, oh, isn't that cute? Little Peanut wants to be a policeman. <laughs> um, we, were, we were basically taught that, you know, if you had an issue with somebody, you had a good old-fashioned fist fight, and you were usually best friends the next day. Mm -hmm. um, with three older brothers, I was told, you know, if somebody picked on me, male or female, I better whoop their butt. And if I didn't, my brothers would whoop my butt. <laughs> there you um, go. And makes, makes you tough, doesn't it? Makes you a survivor. And ironically, there you go. Um, I only had one fist fight with a female, and that was in high school because she was kind of expressing an interest in my man, and that was a no-no. Oh, throw down. <laughs> yeah, we got a throw down well, going on here. How many fist fights did you have with non-females? Oh, golly. All the rest of them. Yeah, because we're trained criminal investigators. We heard that statement. I only had one fist fight with a female, as opposed to I only had yeah. one fist fight in high school. So, how many boys did you whip up on? That's right. Three. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And I won all of them. Outstanding. Oh my God. Well, that, that that's going to serve you well later, obviously. Uh, you know, because oh, you got to yeah. be got to yeah. be a scrapper. I want to add this. They started it, and you know that golden rule. You don't call me names. You don't say nothing about my family, my mom. I tell you, you better watch it. You don't. You keep going. One real vivid one was uh, he was a neighbor growing up in elementary school, and he wanted to date me in junior high, and I said no. And he said some pretty unfavorable things, and uh, I, all I did was teach him a little respect. There you go. Never got suspended. You know, I was smart enough to usually keep usually keep things off school property. <laughs> usually. See, all of your statements have caveats. I only beat up, I only had a fight, you know, fist fight with one girl in high school. And, you know, usually. So, yeah. So, That's Officer great. Nietzsche, so uh, you're learning all of this stuff. So, even though you said you wanted to be a cop at six, when did it really start becoming reality to you? I mean, what was your first uh, association with them from a more of a realistic uh, standpoint, because I know you're going through high school, you talk about those things. W when do you actually start uh, doing cop stuff? I mean, at the first time you got a chance to do any kind of cop stuff. Well, I never liked bullies. I was always a bully buster. Bear in mind, I was 90 pounds, five foot four, me in high school. And to this day, there's one of my former classmates who remembers this huge girl. I mean, she had to be about five, eight, 250 pounds, and the girl she was picking on was barely five feet, maybe 80 pounds, and she's picking on her in the restroom, and I walk in, and 
I say, hey, so-and-so, you want to pick on somebody? Pick on me. Hit me. Come on, right here. And I pointed to my cheek. I said, you start it, I will finish it, witch or something like that. And the bully backed down, but it protected my fellow classmate. And to this day, I stay in touch with that classmate, the, the uh, shorter, smaller girl. And she still remembers that. Well, I noticed she didn't say, you, why don't you pick on somebody your own size? Because you weren't her size, were you? <laughs> no, I was, I was barely just a few inches bigger and a few pounds heavier than the other girl. But um, again, a little feistier. The way, the way we were brought up in the Italian home and with the three older brothers and, you know, you always look out for each other. And if somebody's being picked on, you know, even if you get your butt whooped, you stand your ground and you handle business. You never back down. And I always hated bullies. And I always kind of was a bully buster. Not that I liked to fight, but if I had to, I had no problem. We know three boys and one girl. We're taking, we're taking, and that's only in high school. So Murph is keeping track now. We've got, we've got the Cheryl board over here. So that's it. And my money's on Cheryl. I'll tell you right now. Yeah. Well, just like <laughs> Pam Barn, I don't think I want to piss you off. So let's, uh, we'll talk about that later and we'll talk about weapons and stuff like that all the good stuff later. But, you know, when we did the pre-call and like, sir, you and I have talked before and, you know, a lot of stuff going on, you started getting to the point of, you know, when did you actually able to start putting your desire for law enforcement into, into practice? When, when did it start becoming real? I worked full-time all through high school in Sears and Roebuck and I got transferred over to sales and I would help catch shoplifters. I was in the manager trainee program and I decided I wanted to get involved with loss prevention. I ended up getting a job with the old Bradley Stop and Shop as a loss prevention agent working outside of Boston in the Somerville store. And uh, we had some wild times there. Of course, because they're also referred to as Stop and Robs, not just Stop and Shop. That's right. Right. I'll be honest with you. Um, I could not work in the grocery area because a lot of times I was catching older people stealing canned food just to eat, just to eat. or people that had no money. And I was spending a good portion of my paycheck buying the food for them. I mean, they were the real deal. It wasn't the people stuffing, you know, um, a bunch of roasts and beers down there, there booster girdles, okay? It was real people trying to survive, trying to feed their cat. And the social worker in me, you know, that's why I got into police work is I really wanted to help. Um, when I got transferred over to retail, that was a different deal. I love hearing, love hearing what you, your reason for going into law enforcement because that's the vast, vast majority of law enforcement professionals have the same attitude. They just want to help people. It's not about walking around being a tough guy or putting people in jail. It's just you want to help your fellow man. What well, sure as hell wasn't for the paycheck back then either, right, or the benefits. <laughs> oh, Lord, no. I could uh, I could have made more waitressing uh, anywhere. Waffle House. We didn't have Waffle House up there, but um, Waffle House. Yeah, those, or... those are some fine vittles and some fine eating. If you've ever been to a Waffle House at 3 o'clock in the morning in the South, it is an experience, let me tell you. Yes, sir. Speaking of loss prevention, you know, which, you know, stopping shoplifter, what's the most agree or what's the most wildest 
thing somebody or you know who's who did you catch that it's just a story that you remember to today like you know we all remember some of our stuff you know we had guys that had stuff like you say i was just thinking of that stuffing meats and steaks and stuff you know they come in wearing these spandex things or whatever and they think nobody notices they come in looking like you know a toothpick and they go out looking like santa claus it's like no pal you know come over here so any fun things you remember from that time on loss prevention this was kind of funny but it didn't involve stealing it was somebody kind of doing their own thing on the stuffed bunny display. We had closed circuit TV and watched this guy sexually gratifying himself all over oh. the stuffed <laughs> Easter bunnies. And Now, was, was he having sexual relations with the bunny or just himself? Just himself. He just sprayed oh. the bunnies repeatedly. Oh, oh. <laughs> and... Okay. Testifying, uh, that, we <laughs> bringing the evidence into court and testifying in court was one of the funniest things I think I can really remember about that job. When you say bring the evidence to court, you're talking about the video, right? No. I had to bag up the bunnies and I brought them in. Nah, couldn't pay oh, me for no. that one. No, no, no. Sorry, man. Call the oh. hazmat team. I am not touching that thing. <laughs> I didn't touch that thing. I just touched the bunnies and I wore gloves. <laughs> ah, so, so he was doing some funny bunny stuff and, uh, oh God, just, oh man. Oh, he, uh, he uh, was, he was very interesting. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody who does that in public is interesting in a clinical point of view. I mean, what made him interesting otherwise? Um, he just didn't see anything wrong with what he had done, and he was offended that I was watching him on camera. But then when he's telling me how offended he is, he's like, Get, getting, get, getting really, really excited talking to me about it. And uh. Yeah, I was like, wow. Dude, your picture's going up on the department wall. We're going to be tracking you for the next few years. So, uh <laughs> Sick I said shoplifting. Yeah, you know. Oh my gosh. Well, he was—he he was in the wrong place. He thought he was in a bank. He was making a deposit instead of a withdrawal. So <laughs> there you go. So you but but you just didn't do loss prevention, right? So the funny thing too was you wanted to be a cop, but your mom wanted you to be something a little bit more traditional in that time for women. What was it? Oh goodness! And you know me well enough to know I am not a secretary. She <laughs> wanted me to be a secretary. Maybe a nurse, but she really wanted me to be a secretary. Um, going to high school, um, working a full-time job, a part-time job. I was a library aide in the children's room at the local library. Mom and stepdad um, split up. We had moved to Saugus, Mass. when I was in the ninth grade. Mom got remarried. That didn't last very long. Um, so they had split up. My mom became ill. We moved to an apartment, so I was pretty much paying the bills and everything from age 16 on up, and I don't know if I should admit to this or not, I was kind of kind of skipped Barbie dolls somewhere there, and that's when the drinking age was like 18, and I always ran with an older crowd, so I would go to school, I would work all day, I would get off work and go out for a drink or two with my coworkers who were older. 
If I had to go right home after work, I usually ended up sneaking out the back door, which was in my bedroom, and stuffing my bed. So it looked like I was in there asleep. <laughs> so, oh, I've never, it's, that really kids do that? I never had any of my kids do that. Oh my goodness, this is something new I've just learned. I was probably a bigger challenge for my mom and a wilder ch child than my three brothers put together. Is that because you were the youngest and you could get away with everything? Or were you just that personality? Were you just that free spirit that just is going to go out and do their thing? Oh, no, I'm the free spirit. Um, had nothing to do with being the baby of the family because I was the only girl, and there was a higher expectation for me. Wow. So um, so you were sneaking out, going to the bar, um, but you ended up like moving out, right? You got an apartment over at Lynn, and at some point, um, you started going to college, right? Taking some criminal justice classes? Right. Well, I was still staying with my mom. Um, I started community college in the secretary program. I was paying my way through. My dad was helping me out a little bit. I took, like, typing and shorthand just to get into the program, but my electives were criminal justice. <laughs> there you go. Because <laughs> that was my plan. Okay, you know, Mom, you want me to be a secretary? We'll play the game. I'm going to be a cop. So um, community college was just too much with working. I moved out, got my own place. My rent was, like, $200 a month. I moved into a six-apartment unit where everybody in the building was under 21, needless to say. That couldn't be good. That couldn't be good. Oh, we, we were like family. We were like family. We had dinner at somebody different's house, apartment, you know, every night of the week. And then on Sunday, we just kind of did our own thing or we'd have a cookout. Or That was a pretty interesting first apartment <laughs> sort of deal. Yeah, and you know what? Not many people in their first apartment. Um, your manager kind of had a little bit, a touch of the firebug, didn't he, for those apartments? Oh, he was, he was more than that. There was um, a guy I went to high school with. He graduated the year ahead of me. He lived in the apartment next to me with his girlfriend who graduated the year under me. And she woke up one morning and the landlord was at the foot of her bed smiling just looking at her sleeping, smiling. She she was terrified. And I'm like, yeah, you know, he knows better than to pull that in my place. He comes in my place, he's going to be a sorry SOB. He's not the same guy at the that was with the bunny rabbits, is he? <laughs> oh, no. Mm -mm. They could have been brothers, though, Steve. Could have been brothers. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Ironically, there had been a fire at this building before we moved in. Everything was covered up with carpet and... Remember the old paneling? Had paneling and, you know, um, but location was good. The price was right. You know, no problem qualifying. Went down to the bank, got a $1,000 loan, and got my own apartment. Anyway, he, one, one evening, I believe it was a Sunday, we were all doing our thing and hanging out, and we heard this noise down in the basement. And um, a couple of the guys grabbed baseball bats, and, of course, I was right there with them. Like, no, you ain't going down there alone. I'm coming with you. Um, and we found two guys drunk with cans of gasoline in the basement getting ready to start a fire. Ironically, we live right across, diagonally across from a fire station. So, you know, we confronted the landlord and 
called the police and the whole bit. He sold the property to what we call a straw, or another owner took it over on paper. I said, you know what, I'm not hanging out until this happens. What if he does this when we're asleep one night, or what if this happens, you know? Um, I'm out of here. So I talked to my dad, and I went to live with um, my dad's girlfriend, who later became my stepmom, back in Malden, just till I could get up on my feet and get another apartment and, you know, figure out what was going on. How old were you? How old were you during this time, Cheryl? Oh, golly. Um, I would say it was 18 to 19. And, and you, were in, you said you were in Lynn, Massachusetts at that time, right? Yeah. How, how, big, of a town, how big of a town was Lynn? Uh, Lynn was a lot bigger than Malden. They used to say, Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin, you never come out the way you went in. Lynn was, <laughs> Lynn was pretty high crime, a lot of drugs. Um, we had, actually, this is something that will stick with me forever. One of my dear classmates, somebody that I hung out with, that I partied with in high school, apparently he had been seeing a biker's girlfriend and they found him cut up in multiple plastic bags in the dumpster right by the fire station diagonally across from the apartment I grew up in, I, uh, the apartment I moved to. Um, I will never forget the day they found him. We had a lot of biker gangs, and my best friend in high school, she used to babysit for the Hells Angels, who had a house about two blocks down the street from where I lived with my mother, and Unbeknown to my mom, I used to go down and help her babysit when they were going on runs and stuff. Did you know, I mean, you knew that they were the Hells Angels at that time? Hell yeah. Hey, now, did they ever solve the case of your friend? I don't think so. Man, that's horrible. That's horrible. You got a, you got a first law enforcement job during this time, too, didn't you, when you were about 18? I was doing the loss prevention, so I had special police powers. I was in Medford, Somerville, and then I supervised Watertown. Then you got to, uh, you were with Malden PD there for a while, right? Well, as a matron, um, I worked in the courts and worked with the police department as what they called a matron because they didn't have any female court offices or any female police offices. And when they had somebody arrested who was a female, someone would need to pat them down, would need to sit with them maybe. Uh, transporting a female um, incarcerated individual from one court to another, to the jail, to the court, court to um, another facility, I would get to go and ride along. Did you get any training for that? Hands-on, pretty much, yeah. And did you carry a weapon? Officially, no. <laughs> I'm gonna go with caveats Here we again. Go. Caveats again. We're gonna start calling you Cheryl Caveat Nietzsche. Yeah. So uh, now let me ask you this though. You said there weren't a lot of women police officers and stuff at the time. What kind of uniform did you have to wear? Were you allowed to wear pants or did you have to wear a skirt? No, I think I think I wore, if I'm remembering correctly, I think I wore like black pants and like a white polo shirt. I'm not even sure, Rick recollecting back that I had any type of required clothing. I just had to wear something that wasn't too, you know, back then it was Jordache jeans and platform shoes and 
big hair and parachute pants. <laughs> I know. The spandex bodysuits and all your gold and your hair all Well, hell, out. you and Murphy could share some outfits then because he's got those too, man. He's got his spandex, I caught Pablo, you know, outfit. And uh, it's all hey, red, by the way. Don't say that like it's a bad thing. It's, don't yeah, say that like it's, it's a bad red, thing. though. It's Target red, you know. <laughs> Actually, I started learning to shoot when I was 16. And again, the family friend, the detective, He's the one who taught me. He's the one who gave me my first weapon. Was that Ted Green? Mm-hmm. And was wh where was he a detective at? Malden Police. And how, how big of a town was Malden? Back then, I'm not really sure of the population, but like I said, we had one police station, two junior highs, one high school, one elementary school. It wasn't that big. And he was the stepfather of one of my friends that I went to school with. So, like I said, it was a, just a very close-knit community. A lot of families living in the same city. Everybody knew everybody. But you kind of but you kind of gravitated. I mean, you kept moving up through that. So you start off as a matron, but you also went over to the hospital, right, as special police at the hospital? Yes, I was their very first... Um, female special police officer on their uh, hospital police department at the Malden Hospital, the hospital on the hill. Now, what, what kind of, so again, any training or is that all OJT as well? There was some OJT, but there was also, you know, some classes that I had to take and just basically like, don't get the hospital sued. Don't get us sued. <laughs> you know, yeah, poli You had to follow policy and procedure. So that was the biggest thing. You know, sometimes you'd be out in the parking lot. Primarily, I worked the emergency room, and that was a lot of uh, fun. That got to be interesting on the weekends, especially, I'll bet. Oh, yeah. Any, any guys in naked bunny outfits show up, uh, say, hey, I remember you? No, but there was <laughs> a, kind of a funny incident there. You're just going to leave us hanging, or are you going to tell us? No, you got to tell us now. <laughs> I, I was dating one of the interns that lived on hospital grounds and hospital um, housing, and he forgot. I have keys to his apartment. So one night, doing my rounds, I decided to surprise him, and I was the one who got surprised. He was, uh, oh, that's bad. He was a that's player, bad. and... One of the nurses that I was friendly with, I found out that they were kind of friendly, actively friendly. Flagrante delecto, in flagrante delecto. So you caught, you basically performed coitus interruptus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that had to be fun. I was just doing my rounds and making sure everybody was safe. And happy. I kind of ruined the moment. <laughs> I'll bet you did. It's it's kind of it's kind of tough to uh, perform after that. After somebody walks in, your girlfriend and says, "Hi, honey, I'm home." <laughs> oh my goodness! So, uh, so, so that well, that that's kind of the outside of the hospital. So, inside of the hospital, do you have a similar story to anything with a victim that showed up or any big incident that happened while you were on on duty there, other than the uh, boyfriend who exercised extremely poor judgment? Kind of as an initiation, my coworkers locked me in the morgue when I was new. And, you know, I was going to tough it out. I wasn't going to call on the radio for help or anything. I turned the lights on. And because of what happened 
I really can't share the outcome because there was some liability involved, and I don't want to. Although I got to tell you, I got to tell you, though, some of the worst practical jokes, and there's a ton of them out on YouTube, especially cops are the worst. You see somebody laying there like in the morgue or whatever, and some nurse comes walking by, and the guy lifts up. You know, they do it on Halloween, the pranks. And I'm telling you, just the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or the person that was laid in the casket, they show up and he lifts up out of the casket, oh, like Frankenstein. So, <laughs> right. Well, let's 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 talk about then how. I mean, you you did the hospital police. I mean, here's the funny part: you saved one guy's life, you almost put the other guy in the morgue. You could have swapped places. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know how close he came, does he? Yeah. Why was he shot six times? Because that's, that's all the right. bullets I had. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, during this time. I had started to um, take classes at Northeastern University for criminal justice, and I was going part-time. Ironically, that's how I ended up in Richmond, because Richmond came up and recruited at Northeastern University. And where was Northeastern at? Their primary campus was in Boston, but they also had some suburban campuses Um, But I remember that they did their recruitment at the main university in Boston. And I attended because back during that time, um, you had to be 21 to be a police officer. You couldn't be um, beyond a certain age. They had age requirements. And we were dealing with something called Proposition 2.5, where they were closing police stations, firehouses, schools, and laying off police, firefighters, and teachers. So here I am, I'm 22 now, and they have age requirements. I don't want to go past the age requirement, which I can't remember if it was 25, 27. You're kidding. So you couldn't, you had to be 21 to apply, but you couldn't be older than 25 or 26 to apply? If I'm remembering correctly on the cutoff, yeah, it was pretty young. You guys do some stuff in Mass, the state of Taxachusetts there, or the Commonwealth of Taxachusetts. That's one of the other commonwealths. I started the process in February of 1982, made a few trips by Amtrak back and forth to Richmond, and got hired and arrived here with six boxes, a briefcase, and a duffel bag in June of 1982. Because you were coming down and you didn't know anybody in there, did you bring anything with you, like maybe a, a stuffed bunny or anything to keep you company? <laughs> Never had another bunny in her life. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, just, you know, clothes, makeup, you know, some pictures, the the, the important stuff, the stuff I was going to need, just kind of starting over. But but you had applied a couple other places, though, before Richmond, right? Um, I, I had. I applied to um, Amherst, Massachusetts. They had a big university out there. Didn't get on there. I had also applied for Revere Police. And <laughs> I will never forget my boyfriend, who was a Revere Police officer, telling me that if I ever got on the police department, that I would be doing nothing beyond writing tickets on Broadway. Needless to say, that relationship was short-lived. Nice Italian guy, spoke Italian. But he obviously thought your place was in the kitchen, barefoot and pregnant, serving up Sunday dinner. Well, he should have he known better. He worked <laughs> off-duty security at a bar on the beach where I worked the door. 
and you know I, I would be the one to card people it was a it was a big sport bar we used to have like larry bird would come in and a lot of the big um wow you know professional players would come in but it was an oldies bar did you hit on larry did you hit on the big bird man i'll tell you what <laughs> i was not impressed um he, he got a little feisty with me when I wouldn't let his younger brother in because he was wearing jeans. And do you know who I am? And I basically told him, yeah, I know who you are. And I really don't care who you are. The rules are for everybody. You, your brother, everybody. So, you know. You told, you told Larry Bird the legend off? I wish I could tell you what I really said. <laughs> you can. <laughs> this is an explicit podcast. Hey, you, you can, can you, tell you can, you can say You can say we are, we are here for you, Cheryl. That's right. <laughs> um, I'm going to remain somewhat of a lady. Okay. Okay. Right. I can imagine, though, being Italian, your last name ended in a vowel at that time, Nietzsche. So I'm pretty sure uh, you had some choice things for him to say that uh, got his attention. Is that fair? That's fair. I'm always very nice until, until? somebody becomes <laughs> disrespectful with me. Then um, I will communicate with you on your terms. There you go. Did you ever run into Larry Bird again? Nope. Uh, he's afraid to come back. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't come back there. Heck no. Hey, well, you showed up, you said, like in June of 82. So uh, tell us about the Academy. You know, how many people in there? You know, how many, you know, how many women? Because what is unusual, 1982, uh, and I remember that was actually the year of my first Academy, too, uh, the State Academy. Uh, on the police department, very, very few women in law enforcement at that time. So why was Richmond going all the way up to Massachusetts to recruit people? Probably for the same reason as now. They couldn't get anybody to join. You know, high crime, low pay, not the best working conditions. Um, people are leaving in droves now. So they were doing a lot of recruitment from out of state. Oh, gosh. I want to say three of my classmates were also from Massachusetts. We had some from New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Damn, can you imagine getting people with Massachusetts and New Jersey together and trying to understand what the hell they're saying? It'd be like if I had 10 people from Tennessee and West Virginia in the academy class, Murph. Holy cow. Well, you'd have something then. 20 teeth. I'd have 20 teeth between the 10 of you. That's what <laughs> I'd have. I if you're going to pick up on that. <laughs> Language was a big barrier for me when I got here. Um, I remember going to the Paragon down there right by Monroe Park by the police academy, which at the time was in what we used to call the, the mosque. And I remember asking them what kind of tonic they had. And, you know, they're, they're sending me over to the display with Vitalis. I'm like, no, you know, Coke, Pepsi, <laughs> Mountain Dew. I'm surprised you didn't ask them where the harbor was. Where's the harbor? <laughs> I know there was no harbor here. <laughs> well, they had they had water down there. They had water near the harbor. I talked too fast. It used to drive me crazy. Somebody would be like, "Hi." <laughs> <laughs> what what you just say? What what you just say? So, uh, but you, you get into the class. So, how, tell us about your class now. Your academy class. Okay. Um, we didn't start right away. Um, we didn't start until probably around October, late September, October, because they were trying to put together a big enough class. Uh, I would say there was approximately 28, 30 of us maybe starting out. Six of us 
were females. Uh, there were two females that did not graduate, did not make it through. Four of us made it, and I'm here to tell you, um, and this is one thing I respect, we had to perform the same physical skills, everything that the guys did. Um, no modifications, nothing. I was working out um, every day at the gym, trying to build my upper body strength. Um, couldn't get over that wall the same way the guys did. They would just like, you know, literally fly over it like a deer or a gazelle. Um, I had to grab it and scoot my feet up and then scoot my butt over. But as long as I could do it within the time limit and get over the six foot wall, it wasn't a big deal. Now, were you like the smallest person in your class or pretty close to it? Um, pretty close to it. There was um, another guy who was about the same size, maybe a little shorter, because I used to tease him and tell him that's what I liked about him. He was smaller than me. <laughs> that's always good for a man's ego, isn't it? <laughs> Just be careful how you use the word small when you talk to small guys, so... We, we used to have study groups. We were, we were really a um, very close academy because the majority of us did come from out of state and didn't have family down here or anything. So um, we, we bonded and we'd get together Friday nights and study. And then when we said enough was studying, we'd drink. <laughs> oh, I'm shocked. Cops in training, drinking Murph, does that, are you surprised by uh, that? Uh, extremely so. I'm sure that I've never seen that happen. Never happened at DEA, did it? Drunk every afternoon, brother. Every other afternoon. <laughs> um, so, so, Cheryl, you guys, so how long, so how long did your academy go? About six months. So was it all, uh, all in the classroom or did you get out, did you do some ride-alongs or field training during that time? Um, field training was pretty much right at the conclusion of the academy, but we'd go like to the range. We did defensive driving classes, um, you know, went to court. Prior to the academy starting, we did a thing called going through the divisions. We went to the, through the different divisions and rode like with a detective in juvenile, um, maybe a detective in violent crimes. Um, we we got to learn the inner workings of the police department, spend some time with uh, emergency communications, work some shifts down there with them, observing. Technically, I guess, yeah, the majority was classroom, but um, the range time, you know, had to teach us how to shoot, defensive tactics, a lot of, lot of different things. That's all good exposure, too, especially, you know, for rookies coming on. So you, you know, when you do get in the academy eventually and then get out on the streets, you've got a, a really good working knowledge of what goes on in other areas, right? You know who to go talk to. You're making contacts. Right. Learning how the police department runs, what is whose responsibility, who does what, who doesn't do what. <laughs> who to stay away from. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting is Richmond, well, and it still does, it has an issue with crime, you know, and high crime and a lot of homicides. And in fact, you started in 82, but that was where a lot of people don't realize. So Patricia Cornwell, you know, the novelist, she started her case, Scarpetta novels, who is actually modeled after uh, Dr. Fiera, Fieri, I believe her name. Yeah, Fiero, Fieri. I got to double check that. Uh, she was the uh, pathologist for the Commonwealth of Virginia, but 
guess what? She was based right out of Richmond there. You know, all of the homicides. So when you were on, right, it was it was a violent time in Richmond, wasn't it? I think I still have the cartoon, the editorial cartoon somewhere. It shows this big overlooking guy that looks like uh, Goliath, and he's got a little pop gun with a flag that says bang, and it says, uh, <laughs> we're number one because we try harder. Homicides, violent crimes, they were routine calls. And how was that? How was that dealing with it? Where you, where you came from, was it routine up where you came from in Massachusetts, or was that a little bit more unheard of? Uh, it wasn't as prominent. You know, we didn't, as a rule, have homicides in our neighborhoods. Lynn was a little more active, <laughs> but no, it was um, it was different exposure. Now, I want to correct myself. I just double-checked the name. I wanted to be sure I got it right. It was based on... Uh, uh, Dr. Marcella Ferranelli Fierro, another good Italian name, Ferranelli Fierro. So that's the one uh, Patricia Cornwall-based Case Scarpetta on. But anyway, but so it's violence. So tell us about getting out of the academy. How long is it? How long are you in field training before you're cut loose? Um, you ride with an officer for about three weeks back then, and then um, you get assigned to your own unit. And a precinct. How did you go about learning the streets? Because like you say, you didn't live there. You didn't grow up there. So how did you go about learning your streets in your area? By the way, I understood you also learned where the uh, jurisdiction lines were uh, on your first night out, too. <laughs> yeah, my first night out, I got assigned to work north side, Unit 312. And uh, I went to 7-Eleven to get my coffee and... Had no idea the 7-Eleven was right over the county line in Enrico County. Of course, it took me a while to learn how to say Enrico, too. I used to call it Henrico. Or Henrico, or, you know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I got my first call, and I'm like, uh, 312-10-4, responding from. And uh, I was asked to switch over to Channel 4 and told to stay in the city (laughs) (laughs) by the supervisor. They just say, yes, boss. Hey, man, <laughs> real quick, real quick divergent story. But when I was a Salina cop, we had a couple guys used to get involved in some chases. I think more than their fair share. But anyway, but one of them one time gets the, and back at that time, the dispatchers were police officers. And one of the guys that we had working as a dispatcher, a guy named Ron Downing, I remember him just well, had a wicked sense of humor. So one of the police officers one night, it was a guy named Don Poor, ended up becoming chief of police in Paola, Kansas. But he chases this guy north out of town, you know, into the county, almost into the next county. And he comes back in because they start losing radio contact because our radios weren't designed to go, you know, that far outside the city. So he comes back in. He says, 901, can you call me? And he goes, yeah, what area code is that? <laughs> <laughs> I might have, I might have, I might have uh, violated the uh, sovereign uh, territory of the city of Salina a few times, you know, going places. But you know, everybody did the thing. Though, when you were a trooper, we used to meet some of the troops across the state line in Colorado, over in uh, Lamar, Colorado, and uh, had a sergeant tell me, says, "I can't, you know, I'm telling you officially, don't do it. If you do do it, and you get into an accident, just make sure you drive back across the state line and hit a tree in the state of Kansas." We can explain the damage. Anyway, I digress. Back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So you go for three weeks of training, and now you're cut loose. What's it like on your first night out? Oh, it's exciting. Is this what you'd been waiting for? Is this what you'd been living for to be a, I mean, a full, it's not, you know, special police is one thing, loss prevention, but it's like, but you're now, you're full-fledged police. You got the badge, you got the gun, as you know, Clint Eastwood said, you got the love of Jesus and your pretty blue eyes. You're ready to go out, kick ass, take names. So 
How did it, how did it really feel? It was great. It was like my dream come true. Um, you know, again, being a female entering a predominantly male profession, I remember my mother saying, oh, you know, you'll be back. You're never going to make it through the academy. And what she didn't realize is those words were a big part of what helped me get through the academy because every time I felt like giving up, every time I had to push harder to run faster to make my timed mile, I heard that little voice of hers going, oh, you'll never make it through the academy. You'll be back. And I'd be like, oh, running as hard as I could, and, and I'll show you kind of attitude. My dad, on the other hand, he thought it was the coolest thing in the world that his daughter had even said patrol man on my badge was a patrol man. He just, uh, another point that they didn't agree on in their 23 years of marriage was, you know, little peanut becoming a police man. Yeah, it's funny the, it's funny the things that keep you motivated during times like that, isn't it? Mm-hmm, and I've never been a quitter all my life. My, my thing is you're a winner as long as you try, and when you give up, that's being a loser. You try, if you make it, great. If you don't, at least you tried. So on either hand, you're a winner. And everybody's going to hear just how much you decided not to give up here just yeah, a little that's bit. That's going to be important here uh, a little bit later because, you know, we tease this a little bit in our intro when we're doing this, but we're not giving away a lot of the details because that's, that's Cheryl, as Merce said at the beginning, we don't tell other people's stories. We let them tell the story. So, um, so you are, you are working the mean streets of Richmond. What's, if you do remember, what's like one of the first major incident calls you went on that you remember? I mean, we're not just a parking tape, but where shit really hit the fan. Something really bad had happened. There was so many of them, but there's one that will probably stay with me forever. You know, you guys can relate to this. There are those cases that, God, you wish you could forget, but that haunt you for the rest of your life. We got a call. This is when I was working down in the fan district. Guy that I went through the academy with, he was the log unit, and I was there as a backup. I want to say it was late at night, early, early in the morning like somewhere between like maybe 11 p.m., 2 or 3 a.m., and it was called in as a B&E in progress, breaking and entering in progress. So we get there. There's three of us. We kind of, again, we're like a family down there, unit 314, 315, 317, 318. We all show up. We've got the perimeter. It's in the basement apartment, and... The uh, officer who was the log unit, he starts to go into the building. He's got his weapon drawn. He's going down into, he's prepared to go down into the basement apartment where there's obviously some sort of trouble going on. And all of a sudden, the suspect runs up the stairs. We hear our coworker yelling, everybody get down, everybody get down, put your hands where we can see them. So we leave the perimeter, and we go to start to run into the building, because obviously he's got his gun drawn, something's going on on the first floor, and the suspect jumps from the porch, jumps one flight of steps onto the landing, which is where I am about the time I'm running into the building. He bumps into me. He goes brawling down the second small flight of steps onto the sidewalk with me, right on top of him. I'm on top of this huge guy 
And I'm, I remember thinking, shit, what do I do now? <laughs> um, luckily, my coworkers were nearby. We get them cuffed. Everything's good. It was a very small, frail female victim. Her husband had passed away approximately one year before. She was maybe 5'2", five 5'3", five not very heavy, maybe 115 pounds. She was 42 years old. This guy, it turned out, was reportedly involved with um, a drug-related friendship with somebody on the first floor. He had seen this small woman going down into her basement apartment several times. He broke into her apartment. He raped her. He robbed her. He beat seven teeth out of her oh, head. Oh, it, it was just horrible. I kind of befriended the woman. I ended up downtown in detective division with this guy. He's on the floor. He's banging his head on the concrete floor. I put a phone book, a yellow pages phone book, under his head and told him, oh, no, 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 we're not going to let you hurt yourself. You're going to court. And I also spoke with her at the hospital. She goes to trial. He's all suited up, expensive, fine clothing, um, expensive attorney. And Maury Janice, God rest his soul, was the attorney. And Maury Janice is trying to present to the jury that this woman hadn't been raped by her own admission. She hadn't had a relationship in over a year. Of course not. Her husband died. Okay? And along comes my client, while not a great profession, a good-looking young stud, with a service to offer. He didn't rob her. She refused to pay for services rendered. He didn't knock seven teeth out of her head. They, can't, they fell out when she fell from the bed in the heat of excitement and passion. It was unbelievable. This woman got raped again on the stand and in the courtroom. So that was a hung jury. You got to be shit. Hold on. You know, there's, I, I get that you have to have a vigorous defense, you know, that you, you, want, you want a defense attorney who's going to do their job. But even then, at some point, you can't buy that. You can't buy into shit. I, I can't believe that they can buy into shit like that. Like, yeah, in the heat of the passion, she got the crap beat out of her, lost 17. I don't care how good you think you are. I've never, I've never heard anybody that good that they make somebody lose seven teeth. You got to remember, too, though, back then, Richmond, a jury of your peers, we used to call it a jury of your fears. So she had to go back through trial again. And this is the irony. The second jury gave him one year for each tooth he knocked out, but that's all he got was like seven years. Somehow they had gotten the burglary tools excluded from testimony, so we couldn't prove the B&E. And when I tell you this was a textbook perfectly secured crime scene, everything was done like a thousand percent in compliance. And, and again, I felt that that victim had been victimized by the system. And my main motivation for getting into police work was to protect people, kind of like that bully buster, to help people. You know, as time went on, I, I found myself kind of shaking my head and going, you know, I'm becoming desensitized. It's like I'm tired of getting here too late when the bodies are already here and they're dead. 
um, when the when the woman has been raped and violated, when the elderly couple have been robbed and beaten, you know, there were times where we prevented crime, where we were able to help people before the fact, but those came few and far between as a patrol officer, which usually was getting there to take the report and, and you know, turn it over to a detective. You know, and in that lady's case, you know, like you said, not only was she go through the physical act of rape, but then she had to go through court, two court proceedings, you know, and, and the fact that uh, every occupation, you know, career path has its scuzz buckets, and that attorney was leading the pack down there, his defense attorney. What a piece of crap. Oh, I, I actually uh, got called in to the captain's office because uh, after after the second trial, I told Murray Janice in the elevator, just me and him on the way down to the ground floor of the John Marshall Courts building. I said, you know, I hope you choke on the prime rib that you buy with the dirty money you earn defending people like him. And I hope that he's never in your neighborhood some night when you're working late and your wife wants a prostitute services the same way that my victim did. I was, I was very upset. I was angry. I hurt for that victim. Um, so I got called into the captain's office and said, look, I get it. I understand you feel that way and everything, but, but Nietzsche can't say that to the attorneys. If you need to say it, come in and say it to me. You know, okay, consider yourself advised with a warning. Stay away from Maury Janus. <laughs> I think we'd all agree that, you know, when you go to court, it's like you said, when you follow the rules and stuff, you do things the right way. Look, the chips fall where the chips fall, right? So if, if you've missed something, if you did something incorrectly and they excluded evidence because of mistake or procedural error, you know, you try and always do it against that. That's one thing. If you're going to lose a case, I want to lose it because of the merits, because I either did or did not do something correctly, you know, but to lose it. On, on the fact that somebody see that's the other thing that's bothered me. I, I want vigorous defense attorneys because you know one of these days maybe it's me there and I want to make sure hey I've got somebody you know vigorously representing me but I don't want somebody making up a bullshit story that they try and pawn off as fact to say well she just called a prostitute service you know and she just I don't care you know it's almost one of those things is that we allow we don't use our common sense and good judgment anymore and it's almost like the, the the when you get there are look there are bad prosecuting attorneys too there are there are prosecutors who hide evidence who don't follow disclosure rules it, it's not just on one side or the other but when you get to somebody like this that just manipulates it to the point of where they're telling this story as long it's one of those things if you keep telling it over and over and over again the jury starts going well you know reasonable doubt it, you know and that's what they got hung up on I'm sure it was just kind of some reasonable doubt, but fortunately, you know, again, we wish we we wish we could get the outcome that was deserved in every case. We know that doesn't happen, and seven years is simply not enough for what this guy did to her. One good thing that came out, God bless her, she was able to move on with her life. She moved out of there, which I encouraged her to do. It would just she could never sleep there again or feel safe. I would go by and check on her when I was working the street. However, with the DNA and the evidence obtained, um, they had several other sexual assault cases open that, to me, 
would have been far more questionable. He was found at the scene. All the evidence, everything was secured. I don't even remember how or why they were able to exclude the burglary tools. But at the end of the day, it wouldn't have mattered if he walked in the door and the door was open. That that was irrelevant. That's irrelevant. It's just it's just whether or not you charge him with burglary. But the rape is rape. Aggravated assault is aggravated assault. You know, robbery is robbery. He he took five hundred dollars of her money against her will. Now you fast forward. There were several situations where he met young women at bars down on West Grace Street and was invited back for a drink and did not understand the meaning of no or followed people, allegedly followed people home. And he got more time for those cases than the 42-year-old woman asleep in her bed. Go figure. Well, see, just common sense tells you right every way is that guys might have to pay for it. But I mean, and I'm not being flippant, let's be honest. I mean, women would not have to pay for it in the same way guys do. And just being on the jury, you would have go 500 bucks. I mean, you, look at this dude. Dude, you ain't worth 500. I'd, I'd want some change back plus a refund, you know? Have you had any more run-ins with that guy afterwards? No, I haven't actually um, ended up working with one of his relatives later on in life who knew who I was and I didn't make the connection. Um, I often wondered what happened to him. He was, he was reportedly dealing drugs and, you know, that's how he had the connection in that building. And, you know, just not an all around nice guy at all, but that's one of those cases where, I didn't feel that justice was served. Well, you know, we never, justice isn't perfect and that's the whole thing, but there are sometimes you wish, man, we, we need a do-over on this one. You know, the only, the, only, the only thing that does happen sometimes every now and then, karma does catch up with these guys. We can only hope it, it did with him. Um, well, let's, let's move on from that a little bit. Let's, let's start talking about two is um, I want to kind of start setting the context for your shooting and what happened. And part of that is... Um, you had been on, you know, for a few years. And as we all know, Richmond cops make bank. They make a ton of money. You don't have to work any extra jobs. I mean, you guys are just rolling in dough. Let's, let's talk about the financial situation, you know, what you had to do to kind of make ends meet down there. Cause obviously the pay wasn't great. So how were things set up for you folks to be able to survive? You know, what, what kind of extra duty did you have side jobs, you know, things like that? Well, when I first came on, I, I want to say the starting pay was $8,946, and we got a increase up to about $12,000 by the time I was out of the academy. That's more than I was that's more than I was making in 1982. You must have been unemployed. It felt like it, yeah. <laughs> here here we are. And you know, you got to have a reliable car, you got to pay your rent. You know, you got to buy groceries, all your bills and stuff. So we all worked off-duty. So I did a lot of off-duty work. I actually, I enjoyed my off-duty jobs. I worked at the Greyhound Station. Um, oh, my goodness. I worked downtown at the Marriott. Um, I worked some of the bars. Just, you know, um the Stonewall Cafe on Main Street back in the day. I would work there. 
So a lot of the jobs, if you wanted off-duty, you had to sign up on the availability sheets out of the chief's office. So I had signed up to work at the Marriott that had recently opened. I still remember their billboards. The Marriott, alive with excitement. Hey, yeah, it sure was the night I worked there. Well, before we get to that night, let's talk to because um, there was an incident that happened with one of your coworkers on an off-duty job. He ended up getting shot, which kind of created some complexities in terms of how the department handled their policies. What happened on that one? Um, he was working security at a bank, and during an active bank robbery, he was shot in the line of duty. Thank God he... Um, wasn't killed, um, but between his case and my case, that led to the city changing their off-duty policies. How soon before your shooting was your was th- this guy shot at the bank robbery? I can't remember exactly to tell you the truth, but it was. I mean, was it like within six months or a year? Uh, it might it might have been within the past year. And what were the issues with the city? They didn't they didn't want to cover medical costs or what? The city is self-insured. Oh, there you, there's your answer right there. Anything they can do to save money. Absolutely. It's, it's like even now, they have a policy that an officer has to be wearing their body armor, their life vest. It doesn't matter if you get shot in the leg, you get shot in the arm, you get shot in the head. If you don't have your body armor on, they don't have to cover you. Yeah, I, I was responsible partially at least for a couple of policy changes in the city. You know me, always looking to affect change. I like positive change, but... There you go. Change the... Hey, I might have been responsible for a few policies and policy changes during my tenure. Um, one of those things, man, hey, look, if you're, not, if you're not the lead dog, the view's all the same, man. I always wanted to lead the pack. You know, if we're going to change something, I want to be at the forefront of it, so... Let's let's kind of start setting the context now for um, what happened with you because you've signed up now. So tell us about the off duty. When did you did they, and now? Let me ask you quickly before that on the off duty. Did you guys normally work off duty on the same days you had work, or was that did you just mostly do off duty on your weekends or or on your time off? Oh, you did it whenever you could. A lot of times, some of the officers would leave their regular assignment, go to an off-duty job, then go home and sleep. Sometimes you slept, sometimes you didn't. Sometimes you caught a nap in the hole. You know, you worked your... Sometimes you'd work a couple of off-duty jobs on your day off. And back then, we were working rotating shifts. Oh, jeez. That's horrible. <laughs> Tell us about... What, what did you do for rotating shifts? How were your shifts set up? Okay, you would work, like, seven days of day shift which could be, you know, 6 in the morning, 7 in the morning, 8 in the morning. Um, I believe back then it was 7 or 8 in the morning, and it was 8-hour shifts back then. Um, Eventually they went to 10-hour shifts to 4-10. Then you'd be off a day or two, and then you'd come back evening shifts, 3 to 11, 4 to 12 for 7 days. Then you'd have 1 or 2 days off, and you'd come back and work 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. or 12 midnight to 8 a.m. for seven days, have a day or two off, and start it all over again. And it was always fun. 
when you worked the midnight to eight or the eleven to seven, and then you had to go at nine a.m. and court. sit in court all day, and then only to yeah. sit in court to have them go. Oh, we cut a deal. You can go home, or we're, we're yeah, we're we're just uh, we're going to postpone this. We finally had a motion to postpone. You know, and uh, are you kidding me? You didn't know this yesterday. You know, you know what I used to do though, <laughs> especially with it. Well, I don't. Know. Okay, if they if they're listening, go ahead. Go uh, ahead. If they're listening, they're not going to like this. But you know, several of us got tired, especially when I was a detective. Of you, you do you would you'd work your ass off. It'd be long days. You'd show up, be there nine in the morning, and you'd sit around for two three hours, only for the county attorney to come out and say, "Hey, look, we're going to make a deal. You you can go home." When did you know that? Come to find out, a lot of times this was worked out in advance. They just wanted us there just to be sure. So I started calling them at two o'clock in the morning, say, "Hey, we're going to need you for a search warrant." Then I call. Then I, you know, I'd call them in an hour. Say, hey, we're still working on it. Call them in another hour. Say, hey, we don't need you. You can go back to sleep. You do that a couple times. It's kind of like, okay, we got the message. So they started getting better about it. They said, look, just as long as you're available, if we need you, just got to be there. You know, like in 30 minutes. I said, we can do this. But this shit of waiting around when you've worked all night, waiting around for another three hours. Well, do you think of the overtime, dude? After a while, it, it, the overtime ain't worth it when you're not sleeping or you get home, you got two hours of sleep. Then you want me to put back go back to work, put on all my gear and make critical life-saving decisions with, with lack of sleep. Okay. Right. There's a recipe for danger. And keep myself and my coworkers safe in the process too, especially, right. you know, in a place like Richmond, you've been in court all day on a Friday. You got to go in and work the evening shift Friday night, first of the month. And a full moon. Which nothing happens in Richmond, right? Yeah. It's, a quiet, it's quiet. What do you mean? Just a couple people out, a couple of misguided utes. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I love that you just I love it. You just mentioned the full moon because that's, that's absolutely true. Oh, my God. There were many times I would stand in the parking lot and just howl at it right along with them. My wife, was uh, well, she was a registered nurse, and it was the same for them on a full moon. <laughs> the crazies came people out. People think it doesn't matter, but let me tell you. It does. It may not we may not believe in it, but the, the point is they believe that it causes something, and that's what happens. It's a full moon. Let's go out and do something. You know why? The other reason, yep. too, it's a full moon. You can see. I mean, you don't need, you know, if we're, True. You, you can see. You don't need a whole lot of extra light, right? Uh, by the way, Murph used to keep a lot of his coworkers safe. You know, they wouldn't ride with him. If you've ever ridden with Murph, you take your life in your own hands. So Murph, Murph contributed to officer safety about? by being a one-man car. What are you talking about? I'm a good driver. I, I scared my defensive driving instructor. I grew up in Boston. I knew how to drive in the rotaries and all of that. So, yeah. You mean in the traffic circles? Oh, yeah. rotaries. The we traffic circles. Rotaries. Round you are not in tax. You're Round not in Massachusetts. You're in the Commonwealth of Virginia. They're called roundabouts down here. Yeah, but you know what? One thing I've noticed is every car you ever see that comes out of Massachusetts has damage yeah. on it. It's like you guys play roller derby or something going down the streets and bounce off the sides. <laughs> I tell you what, though, the, the most the ones I the, the people I had the respect for, I was over in uh, India doing some work with uh, the the part of the government over there. And we're in Andhra Pradesh province and uh, we're over at New Delhi and places like that. And one of the guys we're riding with, he, he doesn't look out to his right at all. He's just in his car looking out to his left. And I'm going, what the hell are you doing? He goes, car on the right. Not my problem. Hey, hey, that's but, but the thing was, they had very few accidents. You'd see them going through those traffic circles and the round, and it's like very few accidents. And I'm like, and you see, I, I told them, I said, we're like, I said, we're actually in uh, uh, New Delhi. And you see people jumping off buses and dodging cars and doing stuff. I'm going, dude, I said, with all of these 
gymnastic capabilities. How come you guys aren't crushing it at the Olympics? How come you're not winning gold medals? He looks at me and goes, oh, my friends, in the Olympics, there are rules. Good lesson to learn. That's good a lesson good to point. learn, Robbie. Good point. Robbie Tangarala. But yeah, but you know, anyway, again, we digress. We're having fun here. So let's let's go back and talk about your off-duty. So you're, you go into the chief's office, you sign up for off-duty. Now, do you get the choice of where you work or do you get assigned based on what's available? Um, you look at what's available, um, what jobs they have, where they need people, um, and you put your name on the sign-up sheet, and then they pick, you know, who gets assigned. So all the jobs weren't like that. Some of them had their own on-site supervisor, like um, like the Stonewell Cafe. At the time, that was uh, Lieutenant Rick Pleasance. He was supervising that, so you'd let him know, hey, you know, Rick, this is my avail- uh, lieutenant, this is my availability, um, and then he'd let you know, you know, what shifts, if any, he had you working. So he, so that, that lieutenant that would kind of run the cafe like his own little, uh, he was the supervisor for bringing people on for the, for the job. He kind of was the, uh, it was like his own little patrol district. If, if you will, yeah. Uh-huh. All right. So, so was, was the, the, so then when you got assigned the Marriott, uh, the night of, uh, uh, in October there of 1984, was that by choice? I mean, did you sign up for it and get what you asked for, or did you get assigned to that one? I put my name on the list as available and wanting to work it, yeah, and uh, at the time it was uh, Sergeant Haywood, I believe, was coordinating who who got assigned and everything. So, yes, um, he worked out of the chief's office. So, yes, I was um, I was assigned to work that night. But prior to that night, though, this is where let's set the context now, because you just didn't show up to work like there was nothing going on. There was something going on in Richmond and around your area that you guys had been advised of. So let's talk about what was the context for this and what you guys were looking for um, when you went to work off duty. On duty or off duty, um, Wednesday, October 24th, 1982. This incident started in Petersburg. A man by the name of Kenneth Wayne Woodfin, at the time, had reportedly, at the time, he's now been convicted of all the crimes, had reportedly killed his wife, left her body shot multiple times in the Petersburg Cemetery, gone back to his mother's home in Blandford, abducted his sister in law, Susan, had her drive in his now-deceased wife's blood up to her apartment at 111 North Strawberry Street, where she lived with one of his best friends, who, ironically, was the son of a Goochland County deputy sheriff. He killed both of them and then headed back to Hanover County. On his way home, stopped at a red light, he ambush attacked and attempted to kill Wilford Bubble Warsham, a deputy sheriff who was also a canine unit at the time. So this is over the course of October 24th. Hey, and Cheryl, let's stop right there for a second. I, you said 82 earlier. I know you meant 84, but... 84, yes. Thank you. Yeah, no, no. It's you got a lot of stuff going on. But let's talk about Bubba because the dog saved... What you told us, and I didn't realize this, you're saying the dog saved his life that night. How did that... How did he, How did the dog save his life? Oh, absolutely. Um, 
Bubber, if I remember correctly, was stopped like Route 54 at a, at a red light. Woodfin pulled up next to him at the same red light. And it's late at night, and all of a sudden, the dog sensed danger, and he started running around in the back and barking. And Woodfin had aimed for Bubba's left temporal area with the gun, but Bubba had turned around in the driver's seat to focus on the dog and see what was going on with the dog and ended up getting shot in the shoulder and the arm instead of his uh, temple. Isn't it amazing? I mean, canines are highly trained anyway, but these canines become so, uh, I mean, they're so attached to their to their uh, handler, you know, and to the deputy or the police officer who works out. I mean, for them to sense danger like that, that's the stuff that's always amazed me about these really highly trained canines is, is what they're really capable of. Yeah, so that dog did save his life, and he was able to get on the radio and say he was shot and, you know, give a description this all happened on october 24th right this all happened in one night the three killings and then the shooting of the deputy it was very late night i don't know if it was exactly october 24th 1984 when they shot bub when he shot bubba or just past midnight but it was in that same time frame the initial shootings were all uh, pretty close in time together Oh yeah, it was like a, it was like a killing spree. And just to backtrack a little bit, this whole bizarre thing had started when Woodfin and his wife's apartment in Hanover County in Ashland was hit with a search warrant. Woodfin was arrested for drugs, porn, weapons, the wife was attempting to get away from him and out of the marriage at the time. Anyway, after he was released on bail, which was further down the road um, than his wife, I believe his wife cooperated with the police and said, look, protect me, help me, you know, got to go off the grid. I'm terrified. I want out of this marriage. This is not who I thought I was marrying. And if you had met Woodfin, before any of this other stuff went down, attractive, well-dressed. I believe he had his bachelor's degree before I had mine. Um, Likeable, textbook psychopath. Fits, fits all the criteria, although, as my boss would tell me, you're not qualified to make that diagnosis. But just a lot of similarities. So fast forward, Woodfin gets out. All of a sudden, he's angry. His wife has left him. He goes down to Petersburg to a release from jail party for his half brother, who's just got. Now, can you explain? Can you explain for the listeners where Petersburg is in relation to Richmond? Okay, Petersburg is about twenty, depending on where you're coming from, twenty thirty miles south of Richmond, called the Tri Cities area. Mm-hmm. Right on the interstate. And um, it's kind of a mini version of Richmond. High crime, a uh, lot of poverty, a uh, lot of um, lot of need for for services. And Ashland is actually twenty miles or so, maybe north of Richmond. Yeah, it's just right across the county line, if I remember right. Right. Um, pretty much. Depend. Yeah, depending where you're going. 
also on Interstate 95. Yeah, 95 takes you all through there. Yeah. So, um, so he's so he so he, you know, they do the search warrant. He's arrested. She's arrested. She gets out first because he's she's cooperating. He he takes his personal. I mean, it's like he wants some. Re- it sounds like what he wants is some kind of a revenge, and he doesn't care who he gets it against. But he believes there are certain people, and like you say. He's, what you said about psychopath, I want people to just put a pin in their head and think about this because later on, part of his defense will be something that goes back to the case you talked about earlier. Such a bullshit defense, you know, uh, that, you know, it's just could not be believed. But, you know, kind of go back to that. So he so he's he's taken this personally. He wants to take it out on somebody. Right. Um, I, I'm not even sure she was ever charged or the charges could have been dropped. She fully cooperated. She she's like. I'm not living there, you know. But he gets out, and he is taking it very personally that his marriage has ended. He doesn't like the police. He blames the police for his marriage ending. He blames her family for helping her. He blames everybody but himself. Absolutely. So anyway, I guess all that shooting and everything, he's tired. He, he takes the 25th of October, 1984 off, and at work, I'm given a wanted poster that shows a picture of him, him and his wife, in a portrait sort of thing that was done, and then another picture of him as a wanted person, and we get briefed, we're told, you know, he's to be considered armed and dangerous, you know, um, we, we got to get this guy into custody. So anyway, we're all running around. We have our wanted posters. We're looking for this guy. We're patrolling. No sightings. Pretty quiet night. Everybody from Petersburg up to Ashland and probably other areas were looking, trying to find Woodfin. Cheryl, did they know at the time that Woodfin was also the one who shot the deputy, too? Were they able to make that connection? Um, yes, they were, because what happened was... When he shot Bubba Warsham, Deputy Sheriff Willard Bubba Warsham, we called him Bubba. Warsham called it in, and police cars came from everywhere, took care of him, but um, they were able to locate the vehicle. It was late at night, not much traffic. You know, Ashland, this wasn't a whole lot of traffic back in the day anyway. Woodfin bailed out of the car and disappeared into the woods, so they were able to retrieve the vehicle that had his wife's blood on the passenger seat, um, you know, fingerprints, etc. It was her car that he had been driving. She and her sister had gone down to that release from jail for his half-brother's um, party to retrieve the car. Her sister Susan had driven her down to... Woodfin's mother's house in Blandford in Petersburg, figuring that would be a safe venue for her to be able to get her car back. And that's when he abducted the wife, drove her to the cemetery, murdered her, came back, got the sister-in-law, and drove her to Richmond. So after he did the killings in Richmond, he's on his way home, and he encounters Willard Bubber Warsham at the red light, and tries to kill him, but things didn't turn out the way Woodfin wanted. So they have the car, so they know 
Um, you've got probably every police officer in the state looking for this guy because he'd shot a cop, he tried to kill a cop, and he'd murdered three people. One of them. Did they know? Yeah, I was going to say at the time, when 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 did they first discover the murders? And I just wanted to make sure I get the names right. So Susan Whitaker Hall, Frank Gavin, uh, and Jean Whitaker. Um, Jean Whitaker Woodfin was the wife. Jean Whitaker Woodfin, right? And then Susan Hall was the sister-in-law. Right, and then Hall's boyfriend Frank Gavin, right? Um, Frank Gavin Jr. Mm-hmm. Who was also Woodfin's best friend, right? Reportedly so, yes. God, I hate to be his enemy then. Um, With friends like that, geez, right? No so um, when when did they first discover the homicides? Was that before or after uh, Bubba had been shot? Actually, it was afterward. The wife's body was found, uh, I believe it was the next morning, um, the 25th of October, 1984, in the cemetery. And then um, the offices went to 111 North Strawberry Street. I can't recall whether it was to warn the sister-in-law or why, why they were there, but that's when they found the two bodies, is when law enforcement showed up at the sister-in-law's house on the 25th. It's believed that possibly Susan Hall didn't pass away right away. I believe her body was found outside. So it's safe to assume then at the time that Woodfin shot Bubba. Nobody knew about these, really, and even Bubba. There's no way he would have known about the killings at that point. So, so you start going. You know, you hate to guess what's in somebody's mind, but he's already killed three people by that point. Do you think he was just looking to rack up a body count, or did he think the cops knew and he needed to take out the cop before the cops spotted him? You know, that would be a good question for him to answer if he was willing to take any responsibility or. Uh, active part in any of this. Um, He won't. I would, my my speculation, based on what I know, is that he blamed law enforcement for his marriage ending. If the police had never hit the house with the search warrant, his wife would still be with him. The police, um, he had a brother-in-law, Henry Boshin, who was a sergeant uh, on Richmond Police Department, married to one of his wife's sisters, and they lived in Chesterfield. He, he blamed him, again, the police, for interfering with his marriage. Henry and his wife actually had put Jean Whitaker Woodfin, the wife, up, and they were hiding her out. She was staying with them safe. Or so she thought. Again, she went down there with her sister trying to retrieve her vehicle, thinking it would be a safe way to do it, that yeah. he wouldn't do anything to her at his mom's house. So what happened? Did he just kidnap her right there? Um, reportedly, um, they went outside to talk, and he abducted her. I don't know whether he had to get something out of the car or exact details, of course, and those are things we'll never know. But he abducted her, reportedly, from the party, um, took her to the cemetery and shot her several times and then went back and got the sister-in-law. You, so, I mean, this, you guys now, by the time you're working your off-duty detail, you have all of these details. You know about the homicides. You know about Bubba being shot. So, like you say, everybody's kind of on high alert. So tell us about what kind of a day that was for you before you worked your uh, off-duty job. Did you work a regular shift or were you on days off? 
I believe I had worked a day shift because I vividly remember um, getting a call to assist with traffic down by the Marriott at 500 East Broad Street. Um, they had the fire department there, and there was some sort of a, a explosion problem or a, some sort of a threat that they needed to make sure the building was safe. Then, you know, I went back to work later that night. So what time did you show up for your, uh, what, what time did your off-duty shift start, you know, and what did that consist of down there at the Marriott? By the way, uh, you and I talked about this before. I've stayed at that Marriott. I know exactly where it is you're talking about. I know where the parking area is. I mean, it's just, I was down there for a conference about three years ago, and it just, you know, I didn't know about you at the time and the shooting at the time, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm going, yeah, I know, I, you know, you know all of these areas. It's just, you know, you start putting this all together. So let, let's talk about that. So what, what time did you show up and what did your duties consist of there at the Marriott? Um, I had to start, it was either 5 or 6 o'clock, between 5 and 6, if I remember correctly. Um, they were having two main events that evening. Uh, it was the University of Richmond, the U of R homecoming, and an Episcopalian ministers convention. Which one do you think was going to be more rowdy? <laughs> the ministers convention. <laughs> um, I was assigned and requested to stand outside beside the female um, valet parking attendant. She had a little podium, and she was taking keys and you know, taking cash, and I was supposed to be greeting people coming in, making everybody feel safe, and uh, making sure that they had a little drive-through, if you will, that the vehicle's pulling up either to let people out or for valet parking, that traffic continued to move and nobody really blocked the entryway. Hey, and Cheryl, on these off-duty jobs, too, um, what was the expectation? Was the expectation is that you were there just as though you were on duty, you know, as a Richmond police officer, like you were there to enforce everything? Or was it kind of one of those things is your off-duty gig, that's what your focus needed to be? In other words, they didn't want you getting pulled away to do other stuff. How did how did they ask you to act, you know, when you were doing off-duty work? Um, off-duty work, you were still a police officer, but you were being paid, well, the city was being paid by the site you were assigned to work, and that was basically, if you will, your beat. That was your assigned area. You did not leave your off-duty job or that site for any reason. And you were expected to take any kind of enforcement action that appeared in front of you in your off-duty job, or did they kind of say, hey, you know, uh, you know or did, did you guys just work? You know, sometimes when you're off-duty, it's like, Man, if I just if I've started writing tickets every time somebody jaywalked, you know, or illegally parked, I could be out here all night. You know, what what kind of a discretion did you use when you were off duty? Um, usually, you were there more as a PR person, public relations, to ensure safety of the people at the establishment or the event. If let's say I was working a bar and a fight broke out, I would be expected to intervene break up the fight if need be, make an arrest. Um, you know, you didn't deal with the trifling things like, well, I didn't anyway, um, and most didn't like, you know, jaywalking or spitting on the sidewalk or, you know, um, if, if there was a domestic dispute, you attempted to intervene, advise the parties, break it up, um, 
you know, but no, you were expected to take whatever enforcement you needed to to protect the people at the event. Yeah, in other words, you didn't go looking for trouble, but you didn't you didn't if trouble happened in front of you, you went ahead and handled it as though you were on duty. Absolutely. And, and I know we're we all get this, but I think what's interesting for a lot of folks too, you know, who are listening in, is that. A lot of times you think if you, some might think that, hey, if you're working off duty, you're still not a cop. I mean, you're just working an off duty gig. And the realization is, uh, you're, I mean, you're a cop 24 seven. I mean, you, you've got the powers of arrest 24 seven. Absolutely. You've taken an oath to serve and protect. I remember when I was a rookie, um, there was a violent domestic happening in Ronco County where I was living at the time. You know, I didn't just keep walking because I'm not working. You had to carry your badge, your ID, your weapon with you. Um, That's changed a little bit now, um, as I understand it. But back in the day when I was a police officer, absolutely 24-7... Hey, players, that was the end of part one with Cheryl Nietzsche and being ambushed by a spree killer. Part two is going to contain a lot more information about the investigation, what happened to Cheryl and her recovery. In the meantime, make sure you wait for that episode, which will drop on Thursday. Part two will drop on Thursday. Also, go visit us at GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Our website got a lot of good information over there. Also, visit us at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. And most of all, make sure you go visit us at Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Remember, we've got a lot of good stuff coming up. December 22nd, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to do a Facebook Live event where Murph and I are going to be giving away what we normally reserve for our top two tiers on Patreon. We're going to be doing our live Narcometer review of the world's greatest Christmas movie ever made. That's Die Hard. Make sure you go to our Facebook page, Game of Crimes Podcast, and join up. Get ready for it. We'll send the invite out. But December 22nd, 8 p.m. Eastern, the world's greatest Christmas movie ever made. Stay tuned for part two.